Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Father, thank you for the privilege of being together. Thank you for the chance to begin to have more of our church together physically, and we, we pray that that would increase over the summer, that the, that the numbers of this, the spread of this disease would drop, that you would bring healing and health and restoration. You would help us to continue to be wise, but, but also to, to move forward and begin to embrace opportunity. And we, we thank you today that we get to open your word, and so that we gather today and another Sunday to celebrate the resurrected Lord Jesus. And so today we pray that you would open our hearts. This passage that we're in is a tough one, and it's a warning to us. And so would you help us to be able to see what you have for us in it. And we lift this time to you in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, today is the Sunday after Easter. It doesn't get as much publicity as Easter Sunday itself, um, but every Sunday, the reason that the church historically has gathered on Sundays is because this is the Lord's Day. It is a celebration every single week and a witness every single week that we are gathered together because Jesus was raised from death to life. And so we can still say today, he is risen. And he is risen indeed. And we can continue to proclaim that because that is the reason we're together. That, that is the heart and the core of what Christianity is, is a proclamation that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, was killed in our place for our sin, was raised from death to life, and now rules and reigns over all things. When we're, we've been in a study together as a church through the book of Revelation, and so if you're new to Redemption Hill or if you just started jumping in with us, or maybe Easter Sunday was your first Sunday, um, today is going to be a, a, a hard shift from, from, from the Easter celebration. Um, we are, our normal mode as a church is to walk through books of the Bible. And so we do that often chapter by chapter or verse by verse. It varies in speed. Sometimes we'll move much more slowly and just take a couple of verses at a time. Sometimes in a section like we're in, we'll take whole chapters at a time or sometimes even more broadly. But, but default, we usually are walking through sections of the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And that has some benefits and it has some hard edges. That means that the benefits are we can't avoid the tough passages as a church. We can't just shift into the things that we enjoy hearing or the issues that we enjoy talking through um, or fall into overemphasizing our own ideas and not allowing the full counsel of God's word to speak to us. And so today we find ourselves in Revelation. We'll be in chapter 15 and 16. If you have a Bible, you can open up with us. It'll also be on the screens. And we still have journaling Bibles available in the back if you would like to grab one of those. And so Revelation, as we've seen throughout our study, is an apocalyptic book, which means that it has powerful imagery meant to grab our attention. And that imagery points to reality, but we have to be careful in reading Revelation to realize that some of it is highly symbolic and try to get underneath what the symbols mean and, and use all of Scripture to help us out with that because there's no book of the Bible that is, is as dependent on the rest of the Bible as the book of Revelation. And so the imagery is rich, but it 
comes from places particularly in the Hebrew Bible, what we call our Old Testament. And today, or we've seen us, that the, the, the revelation, we've seen through the study that it gives us varying portraits of the end. And so it's not a linear book. And so there are four major visions in the book of Revelation. The first one, John was on the island of Patmos, and Jesus came to him in a vision and gave him seven letters to the seven churches. The second vision of Revelation began in chapter 4 and brings us into God's throne where we see the Lamb, Christ himself, at the center of the throne, and that that has continued, that second vision, up through today. It carries through chapter 16. And so today we come to the end of the second vision. The third vision of the four begins next week in chapter 17 and focuses on what happens in the end, the final judgment, and then in chapter 21, we see final salvation from there to the end. So that's, that's where we're heading and where we're at in the book to catch you up a little bit. Today's passage is the end of that second vision, and so it shows us the last in a series of portraits of the lead up to the end, these last days that we live in between the ascension of Jesus to the throne and his return to make all things new. And so remember, it started with a a portrait of the throne, and then we had seven seals of the scroll that were opened, and then seven trumpets that were wake-up calls throughout history, which ever since I preached that sermon and mentioned the bugle call at the Marine Barracks at 8th and I, I hear it twice a day, every day, and I, I keep hearing, thinking about the seven trumpets and the wake-up call and the warnings that we have had throughout history. Chapters 12 to 16 show Satan's war against humanity with anti-God authority and anti-God ideology that leads to the great harvest of the earth. And so today we see the final intensification with seven bowls given to seven angels. And the text that we're going to read right now raises issues of justice, what is biblical justice? What is God's justice? What, it, what can we count on in the end? And what does it mean for God's justice to be brought here on earth? And so here we go, Revelation chapter 15 and 16. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps in their hands, and, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations." Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after this I looked, and behold, the sanctuary of the tent of of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful, painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became the, like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing that was in the, died that was in the sea. And the third angel poured out 
out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had, not power, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness, and people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for, they, for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds." The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and the water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen and exposed. And they assembled them at the, great, at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake." The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of, nations, of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. Great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God because of the plague of hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have a heavy passage today. The imagery is frightening, and it's meant to be. And so let's not look away from it or file the hard edges off of it. And remember, Revelation is taken as a whole, and so this section of the, letter, of the book started out with a proclamation, a vision of God's throne, and an emphasis that everything that is happening is under God's sovereign control and, and under the one who has made a way to redeem people. And, and so there's hope that it is couched in, but this is written to get our attention. And, and, and so as we look at this, there's a lot packed into this final, final part of, the, of this vision within Revelation. But with it, I think the best way for us to understand and get the, the big ideas of this passage are to spend some time looking at the poetry and pronouncements of the passage. And we have a tendency to skip poetry as we read Scripture. And so we'll do things like reading in Exodus, which there's tons of imagery from Exodus in this passage. That, that parallels between the plagues that were brought on Egypt and the plagues brought in the end as water is turned to blood and the sun is darkened. And so there's, there's great parallels there as, as God was showing himself powerful over the Egyptian cosmos and over Pharaoh who had set himself up against God in order to deliver his people in salvation. And so now we have that expanded on a global cosmic scale as Satan is exposed as not powerful and, and, it, and the rule of Satan is overthrown. 
But, but even as we read past, you know, sections like Exodus, I think we'll have a tendency to read that and want to get to the, to the good stuff in the story, right? And so maybe, maybe this, this isn't you. Maybe you really love the poetic sections, but I know that I have a tendency where I'll be like, okay, they were, you know, the drama of the Israelites or the Hebrew people being caught at the shores of the sea and Pharaoh's army coming in from behind and God parting the sea so that they could go across and then unleashing the sea to destroy Pharaoh's armies. And I read all that, and then it gets to the Song of Moses, and I go, oh... What happens next? And what we miss is that often in the Bible, it's the poetic sections that are the most important because they give us insight into the hearts of the people and into who God is in his great work. And so even here, it's the poetic sections that help break down this passage for us. It's where the real insight is packed in. And we've seen this in Revelation. We could spend the entire sermon today trying to figure out what the frogs that come out of the mouth of the beast are. That's weird, right? Demonic frogs that come out of the mouth of the dragon and the, and, and the antichrist and the false prophet. I have no idea what that means. And there's all kinds of speculation, but I don't know that that's the most important part of this passage. I think it's, there's imagery here that captures something for us. And so let's get to what's most important here. Today, as we look at chapters 15 and 16, I want to look at the issue of God's justice. And this is something that if you're tuned in to broader American Christian debates. There's all kinds of debates right now about the issue of justice and what is justice and how engaged in justice should Christians be. And we talk about social justice versus biblical justice. versus and, and so there's all these debates over nuance, and I think that even in those debates, the real issues are lost and people talk past each other. We're going to talk, see the issue of God's justice brought to bear today. So three aspects. First, or what three things that God justice does, God's justice does. First, God's justice simultaneously saves and judges. I think this is another thing. When the passage ends, and we've seen this, remember that the seven seals ended as the seventh seal was opened. Do you remember what happened? There was an earthquake and rumblings of thunder and flashes of lightning. As the seventh trumpet was blown, there was an earthquake and the rumbling thunder and flashes of lightning. As the seventh bowl of wrath is poured out in chapter 16, there's a great earthquake, there's rumbling thunder, there's flashes of lightning. All of these are showing us a portrait of coming to the end of all things. But before we get to that, it begins in this section that, as he says, John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And then as he, so that's the subtitle for these two chapters. And then he immediately goes into not just the judgment of God being poured out, but that God has saved his people. And so he has a vision of what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and, so, and he calls on a song of Moses and a song of the Lamb. And so that's allusions to Exodus 15, after the crossing of the sea, that Moses had a song that the people sang together. It's, it has allusions and roots in Deuteronomy 32, where it quotes more directly, when Moses had handed off leadership of the Hebrew people to Joshua, his successor, and so there was a song that they sang together, and here that song is being brought back and so it brings back God's work of saving his people and delivering them into the promised land. But now it's an even greater song because it's not just the song of saving a people from slavery to Egypt and bringing them into a land for rest. It's a song of God saving people from every, every people and nation and tribe and tongue and bringing all of them together, not just into a place, but into eternity in his presence for the ultimate rest. And so there's, a, there's this explosion of praise 
that followed the sea crossing, and here in Revelation, with this thick imagery from Exodus, that we see this explosion of praise for God's salvation. And think about the sea story, too, here, because it talks about the sea of glass and fire, that throughout Scripture, from beginning to end, the sea is used as a symbol of chaos and evil. And so we see this at the very beginning, that, that in creation, all, everything was, the land was formless and void, and that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep and brought order from chaos, formed what was, what was shapeless and filled what was empty. We see it in the sea crossing, that God held back the waters of the sea so that his people could pass safely on dry ground, and then once they were safely across, he let Pharaoh's armies enter in, and then what happened? He unleashed the chaos of his judgment, sinking Pharaoh's armies. And so Israel won the battle without ever having to lift a sword. And so here we see this as a portrait of the gospel, that he is, what they are singing about is that God has held back his wrath from his people. He hasn't unleashed that on them, but that there are those who have not turned to Christ, who, are not, who have not embraced the redemption through him, that will experience God's justice in the end. And we just saw this on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that this is what the story of Good Friday is, is that, in, that what Christ did is he came and went to the cross to take the chaos of God's judgment uh, that, that is rightly due to us so that we can come safely into God's presence, that in his body being broken, the veil was torn so that we can come directly to the throne of the Almighty. And so this is, this is the gospel that is now captured for us that in the end of all things, what do God's people do? Well, before we get to all the, the frightening images of judgment, realize that God's people are saying, great and amazing are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Look at what you've done. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who won't fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you. Why? For your righteous acts have been revealed. This is a proclamation that God's holiness and justice are the reasons, they are the foundation that, for, for why we come to him in worship. Because he has saved us and his, his deeds and his acts are great and they are our only hope. And so God is worthy of our worship. And simultaneously, as God saves, the whole world is brought to judgment. Now, I think when we use that word biblically, and even as I've used it today and said and contrasted it with salvation, that we immediately think that judgment means that it can only be negative. But what judgment is, this is, this is courtroom terminology to say that God will stand as judge in every one of us will stand before him in the end. What the witness of scripture shows us is that if we try to come before God and think that it's gonna be like a balancing scale and we can do enough good things to outweigh our own rebellion against him that will make it through in the end. And the witness of scripture tells us that, that we can never pay the cost. But Christ has paid it for us. 
What we see in the book of Romans, we studied last year during the, the onset of, of the COVID pandemic as we walked through it, Romans has such a heavy emphasis on justification that, that it's only in Christ, it's, it's by faith alone, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ, that we are able to stand before God's judgment seat in Christ's righteousness, clothed and covered in his righteousness, not dependent on our own because we will be crushed on our own. And so God is worthy of our worship because even as we stand before his judgment, if we are in Christ, we are, the verdict has been declared. The second thing that we see about God's justice is that it is true and it is just and it is final. And so there's this imagery of these angels with, with bright white and golden sashes around their chest, and they, they bring out these seven bulls. And the first five bulls are reminiscent, again, of the plagues in Egypt, saying it's, but it's, and it's against those who have been following the beast, Satan, and his lackeys. And so you have painful sores and water to blood, and, and it, 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 the sun turned to darkness. And so there's this, these, these echoes of Egypt in the bulls. And it intensifies. We've seen this, too, that if you remember, if we go back to the seals, the seals addressed uh, of the scroll as they were opened addressed a quarter of the earth that, imp- that was impacted. The trumpets, it was a third of the earth, and the, the bowls, it is final. It is the whole thing. And so we get warnings now, but God's final judgment is coming, and it will be absolute. And that should bring us some comfort. Again, there's a heated debate in American Christianity right now on, on how to define justice or what justice means or, and the implications of divine justice on life now and people debating social justice and biblical justice and, and all of the, as if those are necessary to be pitted against each other and, and people that'll say like, it's, it's really gotten bizarre, right? Because if you, in some circles right now, if you're, if you're not familiar with these circles, then thanks be to God and just tune out for a minute here. <laughs> I would prefer that none of us knew these existed. But if, the, if you use the word justice right now and try to call for justice, people cry, say, you know, you're a, you're a, so, you're a Marxist. <laughs> like, that's just not true. Justice is a very biblical concept. And so if, we could, if you're caught up in that noise, I, I want you to try to do whatever you can to cut through that noise to be able to see what Scripture actually says and allow it to dictate terms if you follow Jesus rather than the debate going on and swirling around us. The reality is that what we see, and especially as we get into the next two chapters, next week and the week after as we see chapters 17 and 18, we will see the outpouring of final judgment on the kingdoms of this world, that, and it calls back richly from the, the Hebrew Bible prophets as we see the language of prostitution and cheating on God with other things, and, and, and the, the, it calls this world's powers, it uses the language of Babylon, talking about exile and the great prostitute drunk with power and all this imagery packed in but at the end what the promise is is that the oppressive wickedness of this world will be brought to justice by God himself who will stand and make all things right the only people that aren't looking forward to that are people who are too comfortable in their lives and haven't experienced the wickedness of oppressive injustice and so we, we can look forward to that with comfort that those who do evil in this world will answer for it in the end, even if we don't get to see that outcome. And, and scripture is filled with clear teaching on the importance of justice and God's burning, abdica- burning anger at the abdication of leaders who have responsibilities to the poor and the oppressed. 
God's heart is always, throughout the Bible, for the least, the last, and the lost. In Amos chapter 5, we read, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You hear what God is saying to his people here. You see, God will bring justice against the kingdoms of this world, but there is a particular anger that is held throughout Scripture for when the injustices and, and power structures of this world invade the realities of his people. And so he's saying to his own people here, I don't even want you to have your feasts that I've told you to have. I don't care about your sacrifices that I've told you to offer, and I don't want to hear the songs that I've given you to sing. But what is he looking for? He's looking for justice to be brought to bear among his people. Let it roll down like waters. Let it, let it flow like an ever-flowing stream. Let justice rise up, and may, may his people be known primarily for justice. John Perkins said this way, he said, God has always wanted the vulnerable in society to be cared for. He never intended them for them to languish in poverty, abuse, slavery, homelessness, or other types of devastation. When we care for individuals who are trapped in these ways, when we show them love and help them move toward freedom and wholeness, we participate in bringing a little part of God's kingdom back into alignment with his greater plan. We do justice, and God smiles. And so we need to be realistic about what we can see accomplished in this world in our lifetime. Revelation has been clear that, that, that it has a clear witness that Satan has power in this world, that there is a great dragon who is making war on God's people. And that he has, he has set up power structures in this world. We saw this anti-God authority in the first beast and anti-God ideology in the second beast. What now are called the Antichrist and the false prophet. That Satan is at work and doing everything he can to kill, steal, and destroy God's people. And all of human history is the story of violence and oppression and injustice. Think about it. When's the last time you had a world history class? For some of you, it's pretty recent. For some of you, you're in it right now. My kids are in history right now. For some of us, it's been a little while since we've had a formal class on, on history. But what do we study in history? Oh, you might have a small section that's like on inventors where it's something positive, but, but generally, what, what do we study in history? It's, it's really just a story of a succession of wars as people fight against each other, isn't it? And it's not that that perfect justice is ever brought to bear. It's one oppressed people rising up and coming to power and then oppressing the people that had oppressed them. And then the scale shifts, and it happens over and over again, and human history is a story of people's violence against each other. That's our entire history. 
And we're not, we're not just going to simply evolve out of that. We're not going to find the right political platform to solve that. We're not going to have the right candidate who's going to make everything right and make everything all of a sudden click. And in fact, what we saw in chapter 13 is that, that the promises from leaders and those in power that they can be the one to deliver on those kinds of promises are things that we should be leery of. And so we are not going to hit a utopian reality simply out of human ingenuity. Because as soon as we are given power, every one of us, it will begin to corrupt us and we will be shaped in ways that get ugly. And so what, what do we do with this? What we see that God's justice is coming, there's these clear calls throughout Scripture that we're supposed to be a, a part of representing and bringing that justice to bear. So now we give our lives to the implementation of the kingdom of God through the work of the people of God, knowing that, that at times if you actually work for real justice and real righteousness to lift people up, that what that will mean is it will put you squarely at odds with the power structures of this world and it will come with a cost. I've heard many people say that if you tried to build bridges in this world, then you have to remember that bridges get walked on from both sides. And what we see around us right now, I'm convinced, when we look at our world, is that we are seeing the result of the abdication of the church's responsibility to cry out for justice in too many cases. And so you see Christians get all bent out of shape because Christians don't like the way that justice is being framed by groups that have risen up. And we say these modern movements are, you know, it's not quite what we're looking for and it's, it's outside of the bounds on some things and, and it's driven by anger and not by love and it's driven by reaction, not by vision and it's driven by vengeance and not a search for unity and how did we get here? And then you realize it's because too often the church hasn't actually cared about the implementation of justice fully now. And so what that means is that, of course, other voices rise up, and of course, they aren't representing the way that God would do it. We can't be surprised by that. But we can sit on the sidelines and complain about it, or we could actually do something in our lives to begin to see a different story come to bear. So, so when, when the church yells about how when others are doing it wrong without doing anything to create a more compelling vision or recapture the opportunity to lead the way on issues of justice, and while openly discarding the need for justice, now we become nothing more than a banging gong or a clanging cymbal. God's justice is true, it is real and just, and it will be final. And what that means is that if we know that that is reality that's coming, it should give us an even greater freedom to be a part of crying out for and working toward and standing for justice now because the bulls, do you see, did you notice something? There's something in here that I want you to catch. The bowls of wrath are filled with the prayers of the saints. Filled with the prayers of the saints. So don't miss now, when we look at this, the, sec the second section, in the beginning of chapter 16, what the angel cries out, the second section of poetry that we have in our passage today. Do you see what it says? Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. Why is God just? For you brought these judgments. Why? For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Yes, Lord, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. 
It's the prayers of the saints because God's people who stand up for what is righteous and just will experience the consequences of it. They have throughout history. It's the blood of the saints and the prophets. Jesus talked about this with his parable of the wicked tenants in Luke chapter 20, telling a story about a guy who owned a vineyard and he sent three servants in a row to go and check in on the vineyard and those who were renting the vineyard from him were angry about being checked on and so they killed the servants. And then finally he sent his son to the vineyard to be able to check on it and the son that he sent was beaten and he was killed. And Jesus was telling the story to say that even God's people throughout history have rejected his warnings and his servants as he sends his servants, they are rejected and the blood of his people is is on the hands of this world and he is right to punish those who will not fall down and worship their creator. And so the, the proclamation of Revelation 15 and 16 is God's justice is coming on the injustice of this world and all of it will be set straight. Do you know what that means? So this is why it should be a comfort to us. Before we get to why it's frightening and concerning for us, we first need to see the, the, the importance of this because that means that the slaver and the man-stealer will be brought to justice. That means that the sex trafficker will be brought to justice in the end, even if they get away with it now. That the oppressor who puts heavy yokes on others will be brought to justice. The abuser, the murderer, the thief, that all will face God in the end, he will rightly judge, and righteousness will demand its price. And so it is right and good for us now to stand and sound the warning that all will face God in the end. And the painful reality is that even seeing the fullness of the wrath of God firsthand, did you hear the repetition in, in bowls four and five that people are being scorched with fire and they're crying out and cursing God's name rather than turning to him? They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel, everything's plunged into darkness. And what did they do? They cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And, the, and so our, people, we, this was so often, we take our circumstances and hold God responsible responsible and and cry out against him for our circumstances rather than realizing that he's trying to get our attention so that we can actually turn and be healed. So we'll stand before God in the end, and the third reality of God's justice is that it will expose each of us in the end. And so this is where we get into the sixth and seventh bowls of wrath and demon frogs. (laughs) And the people of this world assembling for battle on the great day of God Almighty. This third section brings us to the end. And it introduces a word for us that's probably familiar to you. Because we're brought to Armageddon. Now the seven seals, there was a pause before the end, the vision of the great multitude then people, the people that God saved from every nation, tribe, people, and language. With the seven trumpets right between six and seven, there was this, a pause where we saw the little scroll and the two witnesses, the calling of God's people throughout history, that God's word is sweet as honey, but it, to follow him is going to bring suffering. And here we have another but shorter interlude as Jesus speaks up. You remember verse 15 and 16, where it says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And then they assembled at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon is is a well-known term. Even if you have no background in the church and you've joined us today, which, my goodness, you jumped in for a doozy of a passage. (laughs) The revelation gets really beautiful. We're getting there. You just got to stick with us a few weeks, so please keep coming back. 
But, but Armageddon is probably a term that you've heard. It's, it's usually a metaphor for something scary, or we'll talk about that like when something happens that's chaotic, and we'll say, ah, oh, my gosh, it was like Armageddon. Or there's, you know, there was a movie about it. Do you remember the movie about it? Because apparently, if an asteroid the size of Texas is going to hit the Earth, the only hope we have is Bruce Willis leading a team of oil drillers, and we will trust them with our ultimate fate. When I was, uh, about a year and a half ago, I had the privilege to go to Israel and Palestine to the Holy Land with my aunt, and we were um, driving from Jerusalem after spending some time in the old city in Jerusalem up toward Galilee, and just on the road, driving in a car, you know, with ways on and trying to get to where I was going, but on a highway, and I passed a sign that said Megiddo which is the ruins of the city, and, and Armageddon is the mountain of Megiddo. And I was just driving along, and I was like, kind of like caught in my throat, like, this is it, this is the place that the Bible is described. It was really beautiful and just rolling hillsides at that moment. The armies of the earth hadn't yet assembled. Now, there's all kinds of debate on this, as there is in all the imagery of Revelation. There's the, the, the valley here near Megiddo was the, a, a site of old, a few Old Testament battles, and so there's a foundation for this. It could mean the Mount Arma it is really, it's the mountain of Megiddo. So our, the mountain of Megiddo right next to this little valley is Mount Carmel, where Elijah battled the prophets of Baal, and so there's, it could be there, but whatever the imagery means, I don't want us to get caught up in Armageddon so that we miss the words of Jesus. Do you see what he says? I want to read it for you again. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This is where it comes to bear for us. God's justice is coming. It simultaneously will save and be praiseworthy and bring his judgment rightly against the injustice of this world. It is true and it's just and it's final, and it will expose each one of us in the end. Jesus is going to come like a thief. It's not like we're going to know when it's coming. And so there's a call here, stay awake and stay dressed. This actually calls back imagery from the seven letters that he called out to Sardis, wake up, stay awake, don't, don't lose the deposit. And he called out to Laodicea, you think that you are so great because you're so wealthy, but you are naked and blind. Come to me that I can clothe you. And so there's imagery pulled back from earlier in the book here. But even this, it, it makes me think about the garden. Remember in the garden what happened with the man and the woman when they rebelled against God? Before that, in, in Genesis 2, we read, I think one, one of the most important verses in that whole storyline is that the man and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. They were stripped bare before each other, before God and in his world. But when they rebelled against God, it brought shame and fear and scrambling. They hid themselves. They lied to God about it. And then they, they covered themselves up and thought that fig leaves could do it. God had to cover them with animal skins. And so there are these echoes here for us, again, from Sardis and Laodicea, that in the end, nothing we have done, nothing we have thought, nothing we have said, not, not a single moment that, that we, we have treated someone poorly, not a single moment that we have knowingly chosen to do what we believe to be wrong, everything will be exposed in the end because remember the opening vision of Jesus in Revelation is he is the one with eyes like fire who sees everything. And we will face him in the end. And so you might think you're covered up right now, when in reality, 
you are stripped naked on your own. We don't know when Jesus is returning. We don't know when the events of the end will be brought to their fullness. We don't know when God's perfect justice will be brought to bear on this earth. But what we do know is that God made a way through the chaos because of his righteous judgment, because it's the death of Jesus that saves us, so we can join in the song of those who stand at the edge of the sea earlier on in this chapter and cry out that God is righteous and great and amazing are his deeds. We know, we do know that God is the right one to judge and his justice is true and right and final. And we do know that we will be exposed in the end, but our hope cannot be based on what we have accumulated to try to cover ourselves in our shame, but instead that Christ has taken our shame so that when we have the promise that anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And so this is the wake-up call for us today. Like those in Sardis, as Jesus said to them, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Wake up. And for some of you, that's the wake-up call you need today. For others of you, maybe you need the call to Laodicea, where it says, you say I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and, not, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and anoint your eyes with salve so that you might see. Don't lose the fact that Revelation stands as a warning and as a hope-filled encouragement to us. That that's why the book was written. That it, it stands to be able to show us that, that if we're in Christ, God's justice isn't frightening because we're covered in the blood of the Lamb. And so we join the Song of Moses and the Redeemed and we look forward to everything being made right, even our own hearts. And certainly we look forward to seeing evil and death and sin ended. And so we pray for God's justice to come and anticipate the return of our King Jesus and work in our lives to be a part of God's kingdom so that we might see glimmers of that justice and righteousness even now. Our whole series title is Kingdom Come. And it's built off of the reality. This is the, the, the culmination of what we pray for in the way that Jesus taught us to pray. When he said to pray like this, Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. This is what we're crying out. 